Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. My name is Nick Stumelanger and I am the Communications Manager for ILSR. And I am back in the host seat today for a great episode of our podcast. In this podcast, uh, Neil Seldman, ILSR's co-founder, and I interview Jackie Patterson. Jackie is the director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program, and she's a great leader and activist who tours around the country. Jackie's work is very important for understanding the impact that monopolies have on our economy, especially when it comes to environmental justice, energy democracy, and communities of color. And now, here's the interview. Hello, everybody. This is Neil Seldman, Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and we are about to uh, have a podcast with Jackie Patterson, Uh, of the NAACP. I just wanted to mention that um, Jackie and the Institute have known each other for many years. We overlap with work in the sense that uh, we fight incinerators, so does she, and we we focus on environmental justice for all our projects. Uh, And in a broader sense, uh, the more Jackie and her colleagues at the NAACP are successful in cleaning up industry, uh, uh, just as we uh, try to increase recycling, um, it leads to better jobs for everybody. Uh, the environment and jobs are quite compatible, and I hope this discussion brings it out. And so welcome to you, Jackie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, this is Nick Stumelanger here, the uh, ILSR's communications manager, and uh, I think we'll just kind of kick this off um, with kind of talking about a little bit of the work that you do at the NAACP Environmental Justice Program and kind of how do you coordinate with local community groups and what does your average day look like, even though I'm sure that it's a, it's a pretty crazy one. Yeah, so, right, I work with uh, local communities. As, as you may or may not know, the NAACP has 2,200 branches and chapters across the country, including local, you know, everything from sub, sub-municipal, for example, in, in um, Chicago, I think we have four branches because it's such a big um, um, area, to college chapters and so forth, and then also um, youth councils and women in the environment groups. And so we have a lot of, of local groups. And our the Environmental and Climate Justice Program literally lives to serve those groups. That's our the purpose of our mission. And so we do everything from doing analysis, policy reviews, analysis, and um, reviews of best practices around everything from energy to anti-toxics work to um, climate resilience and adaptation work. And so we both review the practices that are out there and make sure that our units know what those practices are and how they can replicate them. And we also review the policies that are out there, federal, state, and local policies, and help our units, meaning our branches and chapters, to know how they can affect those. And then we go in and we work directly with the units on developing strategies for whatever changes they want to advance at the local level. About two or three months ago, you were interviewed by... um, uh, McGibbon, uh, the, the uh, founder of uh, 350.org, and we were uh, pleased and intrigued uh, by one of your responses, uh, and that was to the uh, question he posed as to um, the necessar- necessity of getting uh, back to democratic institutions. You pointed out the obvious that we have to fight uh, voter suppression and gerrymandering. But right after that, <clears throat> you mentioned that um, uh, work at the local level on waste and energy. You were kind enough to mention the Institute's work. So um, I was interested in, in your mind on your daily activities, um, how, do you, how do you balance the environmental arguments with the, uh, with the political arguments to increase democratic participation? We see that in some ways 
the environmental work that we do is both it's interdependent with with democracy because we can't really have a democracy when we have a fossil fuel based economy where the very money that we pay in our rate and our you know for our um, electricity bills not only goes to create uh, to, to to use a process to create energy that pollutes our own communities but it also goes into the coffers of groups that take those profits to do anti-clean air lobbying, anti-clean energy lobbying, and they pay into groups like ALEC, which actually actively advances an agenda around voter suppression. So we see it all as, and so when we talk about having um, local self-reliance and um, local generation of energy and so forth, we're really talking about building democracy because we're taking, we're, we're, we're having a distribution of, of wealth and we're, we're actively working to take money out of politics in that sense. If I could just say, I I read an article recently, I don't remember the name, but it, it listed all the major corporations that everybody knows from day-to-day living um, who contribute to the Alexes of the world to, for voter suppression, to politicians who push uh, this so they can get further, uh, further donations. And it was extremely depressing because it was just about every uh, major uh, uh, Fortune 500 company. And people do have to realize that these corporations are taking our money and actually using it to suppress our rights. Um, so, <clears throat> of course, it's good to be in the same category as the NAACP fighting these things, uh, but it's great that uh, you're pointing them out and, and making the links between environmental danger and the danger to democracy. Uh, <clears throat> and for listeners of this podcast, I think what um, Jackie said kind of about the almost the cyclical nature of having to spend on uh, ratepayers, captive ratepayers, having to spend the money on um, fossil fuel um uh, assets that are being built, nuclear plants, um, uh, natural gas fracking, that they don't have a choice of whether or not to, to get their energy from a different source um, is paying into these uh, democracy-suppressing groups. Um, and so I'm kind of wondering, you know, it's a big problem that you pointed out and that Neil helped to underline. So what um, what are you seeing on the local level that's really fighting against this? Because the problem seems really insurmountable. And I know it's it's probably a big question, but that's uh, why we like to do this podcast, to answer big questions. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. It is a big one. And it is one that we wrestle with every day, all day. <laughs> and so, I mean, we really do, we are of the mind that building a thousand points of light is is important, and so each community, each household that we get to help to to pull away resources that from from um, practices and industries and corporations that actively push against our, our voting rights is just you know the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step, mm-hmm. and so we um, so even though it sounds. Um, it sounds like it could be insurmountable. We think of some of the other great struggles that really just started with 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 small struggles and just kind of built up. I can't think of any of them, but I know that there are those no, out there. Getting, uh, refusing to go to the back of the bus. Right. Uh, uh, Rosa Parks uh, 50 or so years ago. Uh, I can't keep track of I know. the years it's of hard this to imagine. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there's just so many. Um, yeah, so... Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, Nick, Nick asked this. Um, when you go into a community that's threatened by pollution coming across the fence, um, what, what's your biggest challenge? Is it to get to meet the people 
uh, are the people already organized, or are you, is the NAACP the organizing instrument? So, yeah, so it can be a combination of things. I mean, usually we don't, we're not of the mind to go into a community and say, like, you're all messed up here. You need to do, you know, we... Not, not uh, a good start. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, so our work really starts with being in response to the challenges that are posed by our branches and chapters and then supporting them and whatever their vision is. In some cases, we, we will work with units that might not necessarily be aware of what's happening. So, for example, if we've done when we did our cold-blooded report we looked at the at the coal-fired power plants across the country and did this analysis and discovered you know these these polluting plants and so forth and then we did go to those communities just to share the findings of mm. the report and in sharing the findings of the report we had communities that said wow no wonder half the people in my church are you know dragging around respirators or half the kids in the school are you know having to carry their nebulizers mm. nebulizers to school just to get through a day and so it all began to make sense to them through that those conversations so there's that and then from there we help folks to develop a plan towards whatever it is the goal is that they might want to address the what's um affecting their community so it, it so it's kind of both and like so they'll come to us with the, or, or we'll go to them with data and then you know and then they can take it from there in terms of what they want to do with it yeah. um i i want to bring up one recent experience in in the city of baltimore and of course the naacp is based in Baltimore, and, and, and Jackie works out of that office. Um, and it's, uh, this might take a minute to, to set up, but uh, we've been fighting incinerators for many, garbage incinerators for many years. And invariably, the pattern has been the environmental people start the concern because of pollution. But once the decisions are basically carried forward when citizens do the financial analysis and see that it's a preposterous to invest uh, $500 million cost a billion after you pay it off. And in Baltimore, the, the things changed. In Baltimore, um, as, as Jackie knows, uh, there is a downtown incinerator, which we're fighting and hope to eliminate soon. <clears throat> but in the southern part of Baltimore, in Curtis Bay a few years ago, there was a proposal for a 4,000 ton per day incinerator. And the young people there, uh, white, Latino, uh, African-American, uh, basically organized around Ben Franklin High School, and they managed to get the entire city on the environmental justice bandwagon, if you will, and, and got the museums to cancel contracts to get energy from this dirty plant, uh, other local governments, the Board of Education, etc. And it was quite a marvelous example of how environmental justice was the driver as opposed to economic analysis. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you've had other experiences, not necessarily in uh, garbage incineration, but other um, pr uh, areas of protecting uh, environmental, uh, low-income uh, and uh, communities and communities of color, which um, have been inspired by environmental justice. One of the places is in Gulfport, Mississippi. Oh. Yeah, yeah, where we were working with the branch there, and we started with a conversation around after we had done the cold-blooded report, actually, and they and found that there was a plant there that got a, a, a D grade on our report based on the level of pollutants that it puts out and its uh, proximity to people and then the proportion of people who are people of color, the proportion of people who are low income, and it ended up with a D grade. And so we went and had the conversation with them. Then the NAACP branch got very involved in, um, in organizing community members, organizing churches, organizing folks in general around the plant. And it went from that to them um, 
having a conversation around their community in general and what they want for their community. Most recently, they have developed a series of community gardens to deal with their food insecurity issues. Um, they also um, got all of their um, all of their fire departments, um, houses of worship, and so and so forth together to do um, an equ equity and emergency management trainings. And so they've done a whole series of yeah, exactly. And it was born out of the environmental justice struggle. Uh, this is quite a coincidence. You may not remember, but um, I, both of us participated in an NAAC state conference in uh, Florida uh, a, a while back. And I met people from the Gulfport NAACP, and we started working with them as a result of that conference. Uh, um, very, very lovely people. Uh, and um, the need, the need w was, was great. And I also found it very interesting that it was a good combination of um, older people, uh, most, mostly retired, but people o over 50, let's say, um, who had, you know, Social Security and other pensions, uh, could afford the time. And there were a lot of young people there, um, and that, uh, not too many people in the middle, but it was wonderful to see um, uh, older people and younger people working on the same issues. And it's wonderful to hear now that the Community Gardens is moving forward. That was one of the issues years ago that we discussed uh, at the meeting down there. You're listening to Jackie Patterson, director of the NAACP's Environmental and Climate Justice Program. I'm Nick Stumwilling with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and we'll be back after a short break. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your financial support not only underwrites this podcast, keeping it ad-free, but also helps us produce all of the research and resources we make available on our website. Every year, ILSR small staff helps hundreds of communities rebuild their local economies, so please take a minute and go to ILSR.org slash donate. That's ILSR.org slash donate. And if you're not able to make a donation, please consider helping us in other ways. Another great thing you can do is rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rating help us reach a wider audience and get better guests, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. You can also join the conversation on Twitter and Facebook using the hashtag Building Local Power. That's hashtag Building Local Power. So because so many different parts of, of your work seem to kind of intersect with um, local policies and state policies that, you know, may restrict, so for example, like a zoning, a zoning ordinance that would maybe limit the size of a community garden that, you know, leads to, to decreasing the amount of food deserts and also revitalizing the soils that's so important in some of these most polluted zip codes. How do you, <laughs> frankly, it's the, how do you do it? How do you keep track of the state, local, um, and then federal policies that, you know, may be impacting the communities you work with? And, um, you know, maybe as a term of advice for ILSR, how do you how do you get that repository, and also how do you activate the folks on the ground to fight against either you know a specific zoning policy or a specific state law saying you can't have a community garden offering compost within certain feet of X, that type of thing, and um, just wondering how you kind of keep all those balls in the air as you're juggling them. So we just actually had a community resilience convening in December. And out of that community resilience convening, we talked about all the aspirations that the communities had for themselves. And then, and then the communities talked about what the challenges are to those aspirations. And some of them might be political will or interest or engagement of the community. And others might be these, these different policies that are out there. 
in that we also put out kind of a draft policy platform that looked at about uh, 12 areas of of life land use policies and all these different policies and then we 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 looked at those against the vision that folks had and then we started to look at what state local and um and federal policies are that both that support and hinder these and so that's really where it kind of starts starts with the community vision of what it wants for for itself and then looks at what the the threats and the assets are to that vision and then we just kind of work it from there um so it's not as if we, I can sit here and say that we know the entire nation and every municipality and what they have and don't have, but we know starting with the ones that we're working with that actually want have a vision of what they want to do and then we kind of you know, build out from there. As I observe your work in your career, it's very similar to mine. I wasn't trained for it, but basically we're community organizers yeah. <laughs> uh, with different titles. Uh, I was trained in labor economics and uh, became a fighter of incinerators and promoter of recycling. What was your background and how did you become a, an environmental justice campaigner? Yeah, so I also, like, like you said, I, I actually started as a special education teacher and um, and really went from there into Peace Corps where I, where I started to really look at some of the special needs of the kids that I was working with and seeing how these larger systems impacted. So one of the one of the groups of kids I was working with were three year, three years old three year olds who all had hearing impairments because of a rubella outbreak that had happened three years before. And um and that their moms all had rubella and therefore I guess this is a consequence of it. And and just knowing that MM, the MMR vaccine is just something that we all just automatically get. It's just taken for granted. And the difference in a place that where where so much of uh, so many people amass wealth from Jamaica, which is where I was. And um, but yet the, the majority of the people there who should be holding those assets themselves in terms of the wealth. And so they don't even have the very basics of human rights to, you know, to health and well-being. And so that really kind of got me into to thinking about how larger systems impact people's health and well-being. And so, yeah, and that was the beginning. So I went from, from special education to public health because of public health influenced special education. And then from public health, um, so still in public health, really, but then also just kind of larger circles of intersectionality started to work on women's rights. And working on women's rights, it really, it, I saw where internationally and in the U.S. how women are disproportionately affected by climate change. And in doing that, that's where it led me to where I am now. Well, uh, learning that you were, uh, were trained and worked as a special ed teacher uh, fits because I know several and I know how hard they work and how dedicated they are. So um, I, I could see you, you transform that dedication to the dedication of the work you're doing now. As a matter of fact, I, I have a very good friend who's a special ed teacher. She's close to 70 years old and she refuses to retire because she's so attached to the mission and the particular kids she's, she's working with. And uh, Jack, you preempted one of the questions I was going to have was talking about the intersectionality because so much of your work from the work that you've done and I master's social work and master's in public health, you know, these aren't necessarily things that you would think would go together in, into environmental justice. And so I'm kind of wondering 
um, how you take maybe the renewed activism that has come up in, um, I guess, what we're calling the Trump era, you know, people wanting to get involved in their community and wanting to change the circumstances they see around you. How do you get those all those disparate folks together into funneling into something like environmental justice, which, you know, maybe on its face, some of our listeners and um, folks around the country would say is a narrow scope. And I think you've made a good case already about how it's, it's very wide, but I'm interested to see how you think about that intersectionality with um, environmental justice and maybe how we're maybe misunderstanding, you know, just the, the buzzword intersectionality. I was in Alabama. We were doing one of these visioning sessions and then someone stood up in the room after we were visioning and people were talking about education. They were talking about all these things in their communities and then how it was being threatened. And then someone stood up and and, uh, she happened to be the only um, white American person in the room. She's like, I thought this was going to be about environmental justice. And she was really frustrated. (laughs) She ended up walking out in high dungeon. I mean, she was just like, just undone. And so but not really recognizing that it's all um, inextricably interconnected. <laughs> yeah. And so as we talk in communities like that, where whether it's um, Baton Rouge, where in the aftermath of the, the murder of Philando Castile and then the three retaliatory murders, then the flooding happened after that. And it was on a context where the, the social cohesion of that community had been completely shattered because of these racial injustice issues. So if we don't deal with with racial injustice, if we don't build social cohesion, then when we have these environmental challenges, they're exacerbated because it's in a, in a community that has the, these rifts that are going on. If we don't have solid education systems, it, we, then we have a situation where the folks who are, what we have now in terms of people in the public utilities commissions and public service commissions who are making decisions that most most impact um, communities of color and low-income communities, but that they're not represented on those public We have a place like Mississippi, which is 37% African-American, and in the 80-year history of the public service commission, they have never had an African-American on the public service commission. Georgia, a similar situation, not to mention the lack of women on public service commission, the public utilities commission. And so if we don't think about democracy and government and, and governance and, and inclusivity there, then we're not going to have the decisions that represent the needs of the vast majority of the communities that are most impacted by environmental issues. So I can give example after example after example how these things are interconnected. But From listening to you, I, I get the impression that not only are you taking on tough issues, but you go to the toughest places in the United States. <laughs> I, I hope you get to visit Paris every once in a while. <laughs> I said that euphemistically. <laughs> but um, having traveled to Mississippi and Alabama, rural Alabama, and looking at the garbage issues, um, I, I know uh, your issues are much broader because you're dealing with uh, environmental justice more than siting of garbage facilities. We we appreciate your work. Um, your work is necessary for our work to succeed. I, I always point out that uh, the more environmentally uh, intelligent people are, the easier it is to talk about decentralization and uh, the impact on their lives of bigness, both big government as well as big corporations. I, I think it might be helpful for some of our listeners because, you know, th- there's a lot of theoretical talk about, about environmental justice, what it means, who it includes, and what kind of, you know, all the way down the line of like what that can look like. But if you are recommending some something to, you know, maybe a larger national group of people, what would you say the the number one thing communities can do to help have a stake in controlling both of their future in renewable energy, you know, getting outside getting out of these contracts, as well as um, 
building a more equitable waste stream. So just maybe one recommendation for each of those types of things that you've seen in your work. So I think one thing that we can do that would have positive impacts on everything is campaign finance reform and getting money out of politics. Um, so I'll start there. But uh, but more specific, I mean, because again, yeah, we really do have to always think intersectionally and that's uh, that's a common denominator on everything and why we're so messed up as it stands. Everyone can find a way to invest in, in the clean energy economy and everyone should definitely think of uh, think of ways that they can be more energy efficient. May, ha, certainly trying to figure out how they can have energy audits in their homes. And if they work with their utilities, some of them are actually mandated to provide resources for, for energy efficiency. So they should figure out whether that's happening in there. And that will save them money and it will reduce the amount of energy we need to generate in general. So that's important. And two, whether you are not, um, whether you're a renter or a homeowner or um, or otherwise, there are ways that you can be a part of the clean energy economy. You, if you're, you know, if you decide to, to go solo yourself as an individual householder, if you decide to organize or be a part of an organized um, solar garden so that you're co-owning um, community solar, if you and you can even do what they call virtual net metering, or where where you're you're not necessarily engaged with a solar panel that's in your community or on your home, but you're buying into, you know. And so that's another thing folks can do. They can get their energy through there's organizations. And depending on where you live, of course, this is the other thing too, where um, where you can buy renewable energy credits. And so there are different ways that folks can can be a part of the clean energy economy. But it does require a little bit of investigating depending on where you live as to whether you can do some of those, those any of those really in some ways. Um, but those are some avenues. Just a good general recommendation to explore your options and know kind of, you know, what you can do. And what I, what I hear you saying also is, is taking ownership of this is a choice we can make and this is something that we can actually uh, impact ourselves, even if it doesn't always seem like it. Because when you turn on the lights, you don't necessarily see where it's coming from. And uh, that's why I think we appreciate your work so much. When the recycling movement started, the post-World War II recycling movement started in the, the late 60s, it started with volunteers, mostly women, uh, setting up drop-off centers. Uh, and drop-off drop recycling centers uh, became both a symbol of, of change in, the, in our approach to the environment, as well as an example of something you could do to make a difference. Well, that was 68, 69. By the mid-70s, <clears throat> there were community collect collection companies that went curbside. And then by the 80s, the cities took over those programs. So um, small things started by uh, citizens, men and women, often in their backyard or an abandoned gas station or an empty lot, which is how we got started here in the Mount Pleasant area of Washington, D.C., just a few blocks from here, um, led to big things. Um, it's taken 50 years, but then again, as you said, you have to start someplace. Uh, and, and just about all uh, democracy and justice movements have started small and happily uh, uh, taken root. And uh, now we need another push, a little more energy given our current political situation. So to end every episode, we like to ask our guests um, to give us a recommendation, reading, listening, watching, anything that can kind of help bring um, our guests from, from your perspective to something that's really inspiring you or something that's made you think. So what is your recommendation? 
So I would be remiss if I didn't recommend the book um, Energy Democracy that has been put out by Denise Fairchild and Al Weinrub. Um, and so that is an awesome book that really uh, inspires based on the awesome work that's happening in, all, in many different places across the U.S. to advance energy democracy in different ways. So it's great because it provides a number of different types of models and it just you know shows some inspiring stories of how people have really started from that nugget of an idea and organized from a small group of community members to, to a movement. And so I would absolutely recommend that. Um, well, I, I just in this field, I just wanted to mention uh, two resources that uh, uh, that we rely on. One is is homegrown. Uh, we have a democratic energy project that's based in our Minneapolis office, and we also work extremely closely with Energy Justice Network, uh, uh, Mike Wall, Dante Swinton, and others uh, who really not only complement but augment our work. So, um, in closing, I want to thank Jackie for coming here and. Of course, thank her for her work, which makes a lot of other people's work, including ours, a little bit easier. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you, and the feeling is very mutual. I look forward to more discussion about how we can work more together. <laughs> thank Great. you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for the episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Once again, help us out by joining the conversation at hashtag buildinglocalpower on Twitter, Facebook, or wherever you use your social media. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Nick Stumelanger. Co-hosts include Stacey Mitchell, co-director of ILSR, and Christopher Mitchell, no relation, of our Community Broadband Networks Initiative. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Nick Stumelanger, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of the Building Local Power podcast. Thank you.